Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. And when you think of legendary film directors, depending on the decade or the genre or both, there are a handful that stand out. One that always makes the list is John Ford. Ford directed such films as Stagecoach, Young Mr. Lincoln, How Green Was My Valley, My Darling, Clementine, Rio Grande, the or Rio Grande, The Quiet Man, Mr. Roberts, and The Searchers. I couldn't name all of them because we wouldn't have time for my guest. He's Joe McBride, Joseph McBride, author along with Michael Wilmington of John Ford, the expanded and revised edition published by the University Press of Kentucky. It's available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and all the usual places. And Joe, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again, Ira. Yeah, the last time you were on was May 12, 2022, talking about whatever happened to Orson Welles, one of your many books. We should point out you're the author of 24 books, including the biography Searching for John Ford and biographies of Capra and Spielberg, three on Wells, critical studies of Ernest Lubitsch and Billy Wilder, and you're a former film and television writer, as well as a reporter, reviewer, and columnist for the Daily Variety in Hollywood. I wanted to establish all that for your credentials, which everybody knows anyway. And you're also a professor in the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University. So laying that predicate down, and I want to point out that you have the same terrible a microphone setup that you had the last time you were on. It sounds like you're talking yeah. through a tin can. <laughs> yeah, you reminded me. I'm sorry. I've, I've got a mic uh, that's better, and I'm, I'm you've galvanized me into trying to set it up for the next time. Yes, it sounds like you're talking like one of those talkies from the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like a tin can with a wire. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So Orson Welles was once asked which directors he most admired. He replied, the old masters, by which I mean John Ford, John Ford and John Ford. Who was John Ford? Well, he was, I'd say, the closest thing we have to an American national poet, aside from the great Walt Whitman. I think he's the greatest literary poet of American uh, values. John Ford was a son of Irish immigrants in Portland, Maine. And he was a football player when he was in high school. He was called Bull Feeney. His real name was John Feeney. Never changed it legally. His brother Francis had come to Hollywood and changed his name to Francis Ford. So John Ford took that name and he came to Hollywood in 1914. And Francis was starring in and directing serials and short films at Universal with his partner, Grace Cunard. Universal had a lot of women directors at that time. And uh, Lois Weber, the great, uh, one of the first great female directors, was working there. And John Ford got to be uh, an assistant director for her at one point. And uh, so Jack, as they called him, began uh, doing stunts for his brother. And he was a big, tough guy from, you know, football. And he he became an actor. He he later tried to deny he was an actor. He said, "Good God, with my face, I'm an actor." You know, in the background here, I've got a picture I took of Ford when I interviewed him on the last day of his career in 1970. We could talk about that. Yeah, I'd like um, to. Kind of a homely guy, but a big rugged fellow. And he actually starred in three short films that he directed, which are lost, unfortunately. And then he began. He began directing in 1917 when he was only, um, gosh, what would he have been, 23 years old. And he directed Harry Carey Westerns, great Western actor. They made 26 films together. And he worked with other 
Western actors, and he branched out into other kinds of films in 1921 when he moved to Fox, and he he did all kinds of different genres in the, the 20s, trying to kind of figure out his, you know, artistic personality. And by the time sound came in, he, he handled it very well, uh, and it actually improved his work because, uh, contrary to what he said, he liked to disparage dialogue, but he, the dialogue in his films is very lively and colorful and colloquial and full of love of American, you know, natural language. And so he became a master director in the 30s, and by the end of the decade, he did Stagecoach, which is one of the all-time classic westerns, kind of set the mold for the genre and the sound era. And he, he had an amazing period there. In a couple of years, he directed The Grapes of Wrath, The Long Voyage Home, and uh, Young Mr. Lincoln, Drums Along the Mohawk, in a, a Americana trilogy that year in 1939. Then he went to war, spent four years working for the Navy and the OSS. He also had a side career as a Navy man. He became a rear admiral and photographed World War II, including D-Day and the Battle of Midway, and came back to Hollywood and continued making great films until uh, he was forcibly retired by Hollywood in 1965. And I encountered him five years later when he was facing the fact that his career was over. It's a sad thing that this really great filmmaker with this very long career was kind of declared passe by Hollywood, even though he was still popular in Europe and Asia. You know, he realized his audience, as Andrew Saris said, by his old age, his audience was not American anymore. It was foreign. They cared more about our culture than than we did, which is kind of a longstanding tradition, you know. Now, this new and revised version includes a study of the 27 Ford silent films, now known to survive in whole or in part, and also several essays. I wasn't even aware that he did silent films, so the fact that you included that in the new edition is great because that made me aware of that. His history goes back even more than I even assumed. I'm not that I'm a film scholar, but I always thought I knew kind of where he started. That, well, how did you find these 27 Ford silent films? Well, well it's, it takes some sleuthing when you're a film historian. You have to kind of you know travel around the world, go to archives and festivals and trade films back and forth. And he, uh, when, when Michael Wilmington and I did this book, uh, and we wrote it in 1969, 1971, there were only about 12 Ford silence that were known to exist. So we only wrote about one straight shooting, which was his first feature, which was fortunately discovered again in the late sixties. And it's a very, um, well, mature is a pretty good word. It's, it's pretty mature for a 23 year old man to start off with a very polished Harry Carey Western. But there wasn't enough to get a true sense of his overall uh, career in silent films. And he made 72 silent films, which is a heck of a lot. He wound up directing, I believe, 135 films. So it was more than half of his career. And his big film in the silent period was The Iron Horse, which was an epic Western about the transcontinental railroad uniting the country um, a very impressive film physically. The story is kind of weak, but it's kind of like a semi-documentary look into the past. One of the things we, we concluded in our book was uh, Ford's films, we, we said, are 
documentary visions of an ideal world. There's kind of a paradox there. His framing is so beautiful. He's a great pictorial artist. There's a kind of dreamlike perfection to his framing. And yet within the frame, he liked to have raucous, rough action. He, he liked to shoot the first take and he didn't rehearse action. And he wanted the actors to be rough and spontaneous, you know, within a certain range. And um, he got that kind of dual sense. So you feel, uh, as Orson Welles said, in a Ford film, you feel it's lived and breathed in a real world, even if it's written by Mother McCree, is the way he put it. <laughs> and uh, he said, in a Ford film, you always know what the earth is made of. John Ford knew what the earth is made of. There's a real physicality and um, so he brings our past alive he made contemporary films too but he's he's most famous for his westerns and and uh, he worked in other um countries you know like the quiet man a great film made in mm -hmm. ireland that's very popular and films in the south seas and uh, other parts of the world but he re recreates our past in a very exciting way and and uh, he is a poet with the camera he he um he's not just interested in narrative he's interested in feelings and symbols and lyrical moments a lot of times like silent directors tended to be when they worked in sound he he had a lot of silent sequences that are very beautiful with music playing you know but pictorial interludes and some of the greatest lyrical moments in american cinema are his like the dance sequence in my darling clementine which didn't have to be in the film, but it's one of the highlights of the film. And it celebrates the embryonic civilization that's being put up in the wilderness. There's a half-built church, and they have a, a celebration of its opening. But it, the, the guy who plays the minister is not really a minister. And he says, uh, you know, I know the good book backwards and forwards, but, um, you know, I know more about dancing so let's have a dad blasted good dance so they have a wonderful dance on, on the floor of this skeletal church and Wyatt Earp played by Henry Fonda dances with a school teacher from the east it's just a magical moment one of the great moments in American film so he 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 lyricizes our history and he creates myths about our history and you know our our, our history is so mythical especially the west it's hard to separate myth from reality and that's something that i'm very concerned about in my career as a writer overall and one thing i like about ford is that especially as he progressed in his filmmaking he, he began to focus on that question in films like ford apache and the man who shot liberty valance he was very concerned with uh, drawing a distinction between what really happened and what history claims to have happened, you know, the mythical uh, kind of BS version that we're taught in schools, et cetera, you know, and so Ford is very exciting to me for that reason, among you, others. You mentioned that he had this way of framing films. That calls to mind, too, the cinematographer or cinematographers throughout his career. Did he get along with his cinematographers? Yeah, he, he had some of the greatest cinematographers. Um, there was a fellow named George Schneiderman, who isn't talked about much, who shot a lot of his Fox Films, beautiful photographer. And then Ford worked with the great Greg Toland, who is one of the all-time masters. And he worked with um, Winton C. Hoke, shot his four most beautiful color films, The Searchers, The Quiet Man, Three Godfathers, and Shawarial Ribbon. They're stunning films. 
and he worked with Joseph Lachelle and a lot of great cameramen. And he was um, autocratic on the set. And Hoke told me when he got his first job with Ford on Three Godfathers, Ford walked him over to you know a little clump of brush and said, "Who chooses the setup?" And uh, Hoke knew enough to say, "You do, Mister Ford." <laughs> and he said, "All right," you know. And uh, Hoke, Hoke said he tried a couple times to suggest a setup to Ford, and Ford perversely moved the camera somewhere else just to spite him. <laughs> Although, uh, well, yeah, I mean, he, he but so he deferred to him because Ford had a great eye for the camera when he was a silent crew guy. He often ran a second camera, and Ford Ford claimed he said, "I am the greatest uh, cinematographer in the history of films." And <laughs> it's, it sounds very egotistical, but he's not far off. Although you'd have to put Toland and a few people up there too. But he was he he really knew where the camera should go, and uh, you know the framing was exquisite. He didn't move his camera much, unlike a lot of directors today. Mm-hmm. He he moved the actors in relation to the camera, you know, around it and from behind it and everything and so the films have a sort of invisible proscenium arch and ford uh, i found out in my research for my biography searching for john ford when he was a young man in portland he was an usher at their leading theater and he would see all the great stage actors of that time you know people would travel from city to city and portland got all the great actors and and he would see a play five or six times and he would memorize the dialogue and come home to his family and, and do the plays and and he even got on the stage a few times and he worked backstage and it was a tremendous education and he got to see some of the actors he later directed so that was a big influence on him so there's kind of an invisible proscenium arch but you're not really aware of it in his films because there's so much movement it's it's kind of a strange paradox when you see his films and people like Spielberg have remarked on it how supple his visual senses despite Mm -hmm. not moving the camera you know like uh, most people think a director needs to do but ford ford was conservative in that sense his brother francis came from the theater he worked in the theater and his films have kind of a visible proscenium almost i mean they seem a little stiff and theatrical and sometimes he went beyond that but he never quite progressed as much as his younger brother did, uh, partly because of that overly theatrical sense that he had. But Ford benefited from the, I mean, the, the acting too is somewhat theatricalized, stylized, uh, colorful acting. So his, his work is a blend of theater and cinema and other and documentary and fiction, all kinds of good things. You mentioned meeting John Ford, and I don't know if you met him more than once, but you did meet him on a very significant day. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of like Steven Spielberg and the Fablemans, as people probably have seen, where Steven goes to see him at the end of the film, and that really happened. And He only got a minute with Ford, but Ford gave him some wonderful advice. But I had about I had an hour with Ford, and it was my first time in Hollywood. And Mike and I had been working on this book for a couple of years, and um, it was August 1970, and I went out there to interview Ford, and I called him on the phone, chatted with him. He was very friendly, and he said, come on out. And I I arrived in his office, and he was very cantankerous, partly because (laughs) I had written in my letter, Joseph McBride, County Mayo, which is where my ancestors came from in Ireland, but he apparently thought I was 
claiming I was really from County Mayo, a real Irish guy. And uh, he said, what village are you from? And I, and I had to admit I didn't know. And he was really kind of irritated. And uh, so that didn't help. But I, it turned out I was there on the last day of his career because he had been trying to make a feature for five years. He made Seven Women, which I think is a great film in 1965. And it was dumped by MGM. Uh, it was kind of out of step with the times, but it's a beautifully crafted, very powerful film, apocalyptic film about the end of civilization, basically. And, and um, he couldn't get to do another film after that because in Hollywood, you know, it's a cruel time, um, uh, cruel for old directors, especially in that period, because the younger people were taking over and the studios were collapsing. And so his friend Woody Strode, who acted in some of his westerns who was a black actor who was a, an Olympi, olympic champion a tremendous figure and the, one of the first black players in the national football league and woody strode had become a star in italian westerns and he he promoted a film that ford would direct in italy and ford was willing to do it you know and uh, ford when i arrived he kept saying anxiously to his secretary has the italian gentleman called yet has the gentleman from italy called and did we get a letter from him yet? You know, and I was wondering what's that all about. But he was the last thing he wanted to do was answer questions from a 23 year old kid about his old movies. You know, like what do you think of the Searchers? And you know, he'd say, "What is that?" And I don't you know. He claimed not. He claimed not to remember some films. And I was really thrown because I thought, "Wait a minute!" I knew that he was like impossible to interview, but. I worried that he was senile or something, but Peter Bogdanovich, who I met on the same trip, explained that that was Ford's strategy. He, he, if he didn't want to answer a question, he would pretend not to remember the film. And um, I, I came to respect that because today when a director does a film, he or she will do 100 interviews and tell you how to see the film, how to watch the film. But he, Ford wanted you to make up your own mind and he didn't want to tell you what to think. You know, you had to make up your own mind. And I, I really respect that, but it was frustrating because I was hoping to get pearls of wisdom. Of from course. Great man. Yeah. yeah. And I got some, you know, I mean, he was, you know, it was very enlightening for me to be with him for an hour as a future biographer, because even his um, stonewalling was interesting because I could see his sensitivity and his, I felt he was very sensitive, um, to uh, he was very insecure around a young cineast, cinephile, which I thought was surprising because I was just you know a young guy and he was this great master, but he was kind of insecure and that was the key to his personality. And he was uh, he was alternately cranky and sweet, kind. You know, he would give me some really good answers occasionally, and then he would then he would say something sarcastic or cutting and. I was really thrown because it was my first interview in Hollywood. But I was—I became stubborn during the session. He—he he kept trying to wind it up too, and but I kept going because I, you know, I really sure. want. I, I thought I would probably never see him again. Were I you able to, to record some, it though while you did? Yeah, it? I, I, it's online actually. You can type in Joseph McBride uncut audio John Ford interview. You can find it. I put it online. Great. It's also on the. The Blu-rays of his restored silent film, Straight Shooting and Hellbent, which I did audio commentaries for, uh, I put the uncut 
audio up there, which is kind of embarrassing in a way because I was sort of gauche, you know. And in the new book, um, the new edition of John Ford, in the first edition, I, I published a, a very shortened version of the interview to cut out all the embarrassing stuff. This time I figured, oh, what the hell, I'll put it all in there and <laughs> people can see what it's really like. But anyway, he, 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 he kept um, asking the secretary about the Italian gentleman. And I realized at some point something happened and he, he announced his retirement in the course of the interview. And he said, I said, I'm sorry for asking some stupid questions. And he said, well, it isn't that, but uh, all your people ask the same question. And he said, I don't know the answers. He said, I'm just a hard-nosed, hard-working and then there was a long pause, and he said, ex-director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. And I was very moved by ex-director with the pause. He was retiring, announcing his retirement. And I didn't quite understand what was going on until years later when I was doing my biography. I went to the University of Indiana, or Indiana University in Bloomington, where his papers are. Very good collection. And um, I looked up that period, and I found correspondence about this project and i realized what the italian project was he was realizing during the course of our hour together that this phone call was not coming through mm. it was the end of his career and so it was poignant you know did you release that on your own that he in effect was announcing the end of his career so that it became yeah. big news coming from yeah, you I, I published that in sight and sound which i was writing for at the time and i I also, that week in Hollywood, I, I met Jean Renoir the same day, and I met Orson Welles by the end of the week. And Welles put me in the other side of the wind film by the end of the week, and, right. and I met Peter Bogdanovich. And I, I thought every week in Hollywood would be like that, <laughs> heady, naively. Heady stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I realized later when I moved there, uh, you know, that was the pinnacle. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> well, could John Ford exist today, given the culture we have? And could, can Hollywood exist today, given the culture we have? Well, it is extremely di different, you know, with the studio system having broken up. In some ways, you know, they all complained about it to some extent, and there were some problems and restrictions on content and everything. But they had a real good system because they had all these great technicians and actors under contract, and they had a kind of a chain of films that were moving along, and they would assign directors to them, or a director would manage to talk his way onto a certain film, and they'd have all these scriptwriters turning out good scripts. And So it was really ideal for John Ford, but he was a pragmatist, and he made a fair number of bad films, and some films that are mixed, you know, mm -hmm. um, stories not very good, like The Iron Horse I mentioned, but the visuals are spectacular, and or he will do a film that's kind of weak, but there'll be a great sequence in the midst of it, you know. In almost every Ford film, there's something to recommend it. But he he would do that because he had this kind of theory that he would do two for them and one for me. <laughs> and and he would keep viable commercially that way. His brother didn't do that kind of thing. He was not not as cooperative or pragmatic. And his career stopped in the silent period. He never directed after sound pictures came in but jack kept going uh, francis said the one word he had for jack was durable and that's a good word jack survived i mean it takes a lot of guts and toughness to survive a 50-year career in hollywood you know you absolutely imagine. yeah and and the fact that uh, you have some essays in your new and expanded version 
Before I let you go, tell us a little bit about Michael Wilmington, your co-author. Yeah, Mike was a, a, a great actor uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. We were schoolmates at the University of Wisconsin in the 60s, and he was a wonderful stage actor. Um, he was in the nude Peter Pan. This is a legendary production. I'll try to say it quickly that Stuart Gordon did this production of Peter Pan that was an allegory for the 1968 Chicago Convention with uh, the the pirates were Chicago policemen and uh, the kids were bourgeois kids who were transported to Never Never Land, which was sort of the land of hippiedom and drugs and everything. And Mike, Mike played one of those kids. And uh, it got shut down by the school and the, and the local authorities. And I managed to put on a guerrilla production of it in a... <laughs> uh, classroom where we were supposed to show Buster Keaton films and that that became kind of a legendary thing but I directed Mike twice in the zoo story the Edward Albee play and he was just brilliant wonderful actor and I put him in a film I directed him in a film called Close But No Cigar and I, I have a little regret because I kind of turned Mike from an actor into a writer and you know he was an awfully good writer but he was a terrific actor and I wish he had continued in that he, he did some he tried later to resume his career as an actor, but um, he became an important um, reviewer for the Chicago Tribune. He, he was their lead reviewer for a while, and he also was a second-string reviewer for the Los Angeles Times, and he wrote for a lot of other publications. He taught me almost everything I know about acting. I, you know, I learned a heck of a lot about acting from Mike because he was so sensitive to actors and, and how to write about them, which is difficult to do. And he he was very um, attuned to the complexities and paradoxes of John Ford, and he wrote very well about those. And we had very very long conversations where we hashed out all these issues. And it was the first, um, not the first book on Ford in English, but almost the first. So we were breaking some new ground. And Ford was controversial because the Vietnam War was going on, and people were. Uh, equating him sort of falsely with John Wayne's gung-ho attitudes about the war. So we were trying to reclaim Ford from critical obscurity. And uh, many years later, when I did my biography in the 90s, I found that Ford was becoming forgotten about again. And uh, that's one reason I, I wrote the biography, which actually took about a 30-year period of research. But I and some other writers brought Ford back into prominence. And now he's generally considered, you know, one of our greatest directors, if not the greatest. And, but Mike was, we, you know, it was a real collaborative thing. We really, we had some angry arguments. It was very passionate, you know, and that's why the book is good, actually. And we, the, the book reads well. When I updated the book, it was in print for a long time, and then it went out of print. But I, um, I tried to keep the youthful flavor of the writing and not to change it unless I had to. If there were some things that were a little off or things that I could have improved, I did. But I tried to resist doing that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But I put a lot of new photographs in the book, which are really good. And also I have four appendices of uh, writing about the silent period, which is a very ambitious essay about, you know, with 27 of his 72 films, you get a pretty good sense of what he was doing in the formative years. And there was a good uh, thesis by a fellow named Steve Mayhew on Ford's silent years, and he and I kind of helped each other with the research, and I was able to draw from his research, too. And, you know, we can 
pieced together the missing films to some extent from scripts and reviews. I read scripts in Ford's collection. and So that's, that's fresh and, and uh, important, I think. And then I wrote about Ford's view of race and Ford's view of his Irish heritage and Ford's use of comedy mixed with tragedy. And I picked those topics because those are the three most controversial things about Ford. If people don't like Ford, they will usually bring up comedy is usually the rap against him. I don't like that broad comedy, the brawling comedy in his films, but it's integral to his worldview and, and his racial themes are complicated. He was ahead of his time in many ways, uh, but sometimes his films are stereotypical. He evolved on race. He got much more sophisticated later on, but he, he was one of the few American filmmakers of his generation who dealt with race all through his career because it's, it's such an important theme in our country, you know? So he deserves a lot of credit for that. And, and the Irishness is related to that. Some people say, oh, I don't like all the Irish uh, shtick in his films. And so I, you know, I figured let's take the bull by the horns and grapple with them. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Joseph McBride, author along with Michael Wilmington, who died in 2022, of John Ford, the revised and expanded edition. It's published by the University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and all the usual places. Joe, thanks for being on the show again. Thank you, Ira. It's always a pleasure. It's terrific talking to you. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.